0: Cities and small towns across America once woke up to their local newspaper on their doorstep. Over the last several decades, though, those newspapers have begun to disappear. A University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill study showing that disappearance has heralded the rise of news deserts in the United States. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Penelope Muse Abernathy. Abernathy is the Knight Chair in Journalism and Digital Media Economics at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's also a former executive at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Abernathy's research focuses on the implications of the digital revolution for news organizations, the information needs of communities, and the emergence of news deserts in the US. Penny,
1: thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for devoting uh, time to discuss this very important and interesting topic, I think. I'm just going to ask you to describe
0: how you define
1: a news desert in your work. Well, my own definition has evolved over the last five to 10 years. Um, I think my initial definition was based on a lot of research that had been done uh, starting at uh, UNC in the 1970s. Uh, around the importance of uh, local newspapers, good local newspapers, in actually setting the agenda for debate of public policy issues uh, that were important to us as residents of a community and would affect the quality of our lives as well as the lives of future generations. So I initially defined it as a community without a newspaper. Uh, and that's important because newspapers have been vitally important to us in this vast country of ours, of kind of establishing not only our connection to the larger democracy, but also in terms of building a sense of community, uh, from all of that. So, I mean, but how it has evolved since then is I've, I've tended to look at it as we've had the rise of digital alternatives, as I've looked at alternative media like ethnic media or public broadcasting. What I, I now say today is a news desert is a community that lacks readily available, easily accessible uh, access to uh, some sort of the critical news and information we need to make important decisions.
2: Penny, could you talk about some of the numbers? This is the Stats and Stories show. Just some of the losses over the last uh, few years that you've documented in the just a, a magnificent study on news deserts and ghost newspapers you've been doing now for some time. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, there are two ways to look at loss. One is loss of newspapers and one is loss of journalists. And so let me talk about the loss of newspapers first, which is where we started, right? Uh, between over the past 15 years, between the end of 2004 to the end of 2019, we basically lost a fourth of all the newspapers in this country. Uh, that's 2,100 newspapers. Uh, and of those 2,100, most were uh, in small and mid-sized communities. So one way to look at it is you lose a newspaper, you lose the person who's going to show up and cover what might be a look to be a routine school board meeting or a routine county commissioner meeting that turns out to have Uh, on the agenda, something with huge implications for you. So you lose the reporter that shows up to do that. Uh, When you lose a a reporter, uh, we have lost, over the past 10 years, we have lost uh, more than half of the newspaper reporters in this country. That's 36,000 reporters. So and disproportionately, we've lost reporters there at the, the state and regional level. Mm-hmm. So one way to think about it is when you lose a reporter at the state and regional level co- for a newspaper is you're losing the reporter that covers an important beat that binds a region and a state together, like education, like health, like environment. Uh, so, you know, what we've lost, I think, in all of this is the ability to understand how we're related to our next door neighbors or how we're related to people in another part of the region or the state that share the same problems and issues we do. Uh, mm-hmm. But because we don't have that kind of unifying look that says this is important to me locally, this is important to me regionally and in a state uh, wide matter, we don't have the ability to basically know what the important issues are to much less set the agenda for how we need to solve these problems.
3: So, so Richard, thanks for asking the stats question, man. I mean, that's, You're welcome. that's, that's You're like welcome. That's taking the arrow out of my quiver. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, Betty, uh, so, so me, let me follow up and just, just ask you to, to, to explore some of the drivers of this phenomena. What are some of the things that have happened, that have changed, that have kind of pushed the, the newspapers out of business?
1: Well, and, and let me just say, there there's certain things that have happened that have been unforeseen, right? Okay. So uh, one of the things that if you look back in the year 2000, everybody was, it was kind of fashionable to say newspapers are going to be dinosaurs, right? We're entering the digital age. The information is going to flourish. Your next door neighbor can put out his or her own podcast, newspaper, whatever you want to call it <laughs> from any of that. Uh, and what that assumed, I think, is that there would be the development of a business model that would a a digital business model. So if we look back 200 years, the for-profit business model that had sustained between 9,000 and 11,000 newspapers at the turn of the century uh, basically collapsed. And that business model was built around getting 80 to 90% of the revenue that supported newsrooms from advertising. So that collapsed. There was an assumption a digital model would develop. And in, in kind of the most stark terms, what we can say is a digital business model has not yet evolved, All right, Because, and part of the issue is, uh, there are between 75 and 80% of the revenue, even in small markets, in terms of digital dollars, goes to the two tech giants google and facebook which do not really create local news so we've had kind of a vacuum occur in terms of news being created at the local level and if you think about it if they're taking 75 percent of the revenue digital revenue out of there that leaves television stations newspapers digital outlets to kind of fight over the, the other scraps. There's just not a, a, a business model now that has replaced the print model.
2: So one of the phenomena that I think that's going on here that I think is interesting with the loss of local journalism, we've just had this election. A lot of people sort of don't understand Donald Trump's popularity And I think a big part of it, and I think Brookings Institution has done some work on this, I think you have. With the loss of local journalism, the default for news has become, for many, particularly conservative people in rural and small town areas, has become talk radio, which is on all afternoon, is mostly conservative, and in the evening, Fox News. And I've heard George Packer talk about this from The New Yorker, that He's talked to some local editors in small towns across this country, and he said one of the changes that they see is that people aren't sending in letters and talking about local issues anymore. Mm -hmm. They're talking about Mm -hmm. often Fox talking points or conservative radio talking points. Could you talk about, have you seen that? And, uh, you know, to me, if you really want to understand the tremendous popularity of Donald Trump, this is, I think this is one area to look at that people just aren't following local news anymore because it's not there.
1: Well, let me just say, I think it's a little more complicated than just saying it's conservative talk radio and conservative television. I think the other half of the equation is uh, the algorithm driving propensity of social media and the internet. So what gets said on the conservative channels gets amplified in social media. And what also happens is that because of the loss of journalists, because of the loss of local uh, newspapers, you have to turn to social media to find out something, right? I mean, there's just not, it's not being covered locally. You don't have a way to know it. So a classic example is the pandemic most recently, right? I mean, Uh, just it was not being covered locally in my local newspaper. I live about 80 miles outside the the Chapel Hill bubble. And so it was almost impossible to find any statistics on anything. Uh, Right. And so even most recently, my husband said to me that the local hospital had run out of beds. This was about a month and a half ago in our hometown in, in Larnberg. And I said, how do you know? And he said the funeral director posted something on his Facebook page. Now, in a way, in a way that's probably a more reliable source than you would normally get because the funeral director probably is in touch with what's happening uh, there. He may even be on the board of directors at the local hospital. I'm not sure, but that's how desperate you are to get information. You just don't have somebody covering something as vital to the, the health of your life, to say nothing of the quality of your life mm-hmm. on a local level.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our guest today is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills, Penny Abernathy. One of the things that I was reading about recently, Penny, was the rise in some of these communities where there's a dearth of local news, of these newspapers that look like news but are are, you know, pushing an agenda, and I wonder if you have started looking at some of that in your work on
1: news deserts and how that
0: sort of is influencing how you're thinking about this issue.
1: I think, I think there are a couple of ways to look at what is happening. If you look back over the last decade, what we can say is that we, we had the emergence of a new type of media baron, especially in local news. It were the private equity and the hedge funds who just kind of rushed in, swooped in after the recession bought uh, newspapers at just rock bottom prices and managed them the same way they manage a widget factory which is you go in and you cut cost and try to get it to profitability and you either then harvest it sell it or just shut it down if you can't do it right so Mm -hmm. if you look at the decade between 2010 and 2020 you see the rise of these huge conglomerates right that own as many as 600 newspapers. Now, wow. that's a real disconnect with the community that the newspaper is supposed to be serving, right? So, and they've also been responsible for shuttering an, onor- an enormous number of newspapers or merging them together yeah. so you don't have it. I, my fear is we don't know yet know who's going to own the next decade, right? And what we have seen is a huge proliferation over the last uh, year or two of what some people call pink slime, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Is these partisan-based uh, news uh, outlets, and some of them are being very deliberately targeted at what are news deserts, mm-hmm. right? So, it, And part of the problem with these partisan sites is that there's no transparency to them, right? I've looked at a number of them. You don't know who's funding them. Right. Uh, you don't know what the agenda is. You don't even know whether the reporter's reporting on them or even local or maybe based in another country or another part of the country and, and supposedly writing up press releases or whatever. There's also a pay-to-play element for there. Mm-hmm. So my concern is if you look at it just from the, the needs, the information needs of a community, we're in danger of actually bringing uh, partisanship down to the very local level. Mm. And I, may, I think most people don't vote on somebody for the local school board based on whether they're Republican or Democrat, they're voting based on what they want to do in this local school system and what they think the priorities are there.
3: Mm-hmm. I'd like to just quickly follow up on what, one of the things you just said, which was the information needs of the community. Yeah. I and mean, you've, al- you've already talked about the idea of essentially this trend from, lo- there's this trend from local to national, this trend from broad coverage yeah. of these regional issues, and also th- from a broad perspective to more customized, algorithmically determined Focus, yeah. but but what what are the information needs for the community that are not being served by this by these trends?
1: Well, what I harken back to is what the FCC uh, uh, produced in uh, 2012, and they basically brought a group of uh, social science scholars together and said, "Identify what, what I need as a an ordinary resident an ordinary community to know about, so that I can make wise decisions about the quality of my life." The quality of my children, and the quality of future generations. And they identified eight topics. Uh, the FCC has them on their w- website. I use them when we're judging whether uh, a news site is actually a news site. Mm-hmm. It includes things like do they cover education, environment, health, governance, infrastructure, uh, economic development, politics, and public safety. I think I got all eight there. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a first for me. Right. <laughs> And, you know, we have used that when we've assessed a a whole range of things. For instance, in the 2020 report, we looked at Facebook shared with us 300 and some odd pieces of local news that ended up on their local news feed. And what we concluded is when an algorithm is choosing your news and there's a dearth of local news, what tends to happen is the majority of the news that you get uh, through Facebook's local news feed, is either related to crime mm. and not even is kind of a wackadoodle a doodle crime type thing. Mm. Uh, and it's also related to human interest uh, types of things, right? So, you know, we look very specifically at North Carolina and among things that we found in North Carolina is when a hurricane was coming through, the warning for the hurricane actually appeared two days after the hurricane was already out to sea. Now, if you think about it, That's because it took that long to get enough shares for it to rise to the level that the algorithm picked it up as being an important local news.
0: This makes me think of the argument that we sometimes make when people are are arguing over what journalism should be and what we should prioritize, because, you know, a lot of the conversations in a lot of our classrooms is, you know, you wanted to give a mix. You want to sort of inform your community about things that maybe they think they don't care about, but that impact them, but also give them a little bit of the of the human interest. And it feels like. The argument that we've been making in classrooms that if you just let people choose, all they're going to choose is the human interest stuff, which might be might be interesting for them, but might not sort of have the same importance to their lives. It sounds like in this examination of Facebook, you've found some evidence of that. Right. Right.
3: So so give us some hope here, Penny. Uh,
1: (laughs) uh, (laughs) 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 let, 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 Let me just say, I think there's there's several silver linings in this this thunderstorm that is overhead. I think, you know, whatever we can say about the pandemic, I think it has helped raise awareness among the general citizenry of how important it is to have local information and have Mm -hmm. the facts and the data and the stats right there so that you you can make wise decisions just about what you do that day. Uh, And we saw digital subscriptions rise from that. Now, the other thing I would say is what's been discouraging to me is The fact that roughly, uh, you know, 50 percent of people in a poll by um, surveyed by Pew Research Center found said that they were not getting the relevant local news they needed. Uh, But 75 percent said they weren't aware (laughs) that newspapers were having any kind of financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge disconnect. Now, what I have seen over the last two years is I think the industry has awakened to the problem that they need to, they're going to need help other than just kind of generating it. And we have, for the first time, I think, in Congress, bipartisan support for a number of policies aimed at at least giving short term support to news organizations going forward. Uh, on the other hand, short of policy, I also have studied business models, sustainable business models, and I have concluded that if you are in a community with average to above average population and economic growth prospects and have a publisher, owner, uh, founder of a digital site that is truly connected to the community and understands the community's needs and expectations, and that is of both residents and businesses, then you have at least an average chance of creating a very diversified for-profit, non-profit or hybrid model. Where I continue to be most concerned is in economically struggling communities that have lost news organizations. And disproportionately, that's where we've lost newspapers Mm -hmm. because of the collapse of the for-profit model.
2: Penny, can you, one of my frustrations to add on is the the national news media is not covering this as a national problem. It's localized coverage. And this, I think, is partly a problem of journalism doesn't do a very good job of covering journalism. <laughs> and I think you mentioned that before. Yeah. But this reminds me a little bit of the Catholic abuse case where it took 20 or 25 years yeah. before I realized this wasn't a local problem in community. This was a national and international problem and it wasn't until the spotlight team at the Boston Globe made this a national problem. Do you have any hope that the national media will focus on this more and not just sort of treat this as, oh, here's what's going on in this community, uh, not an isolated story, but one that we all need to be uh, pay attention to? Because frankly, some of the national newspapers and organizations are doing very well financially, uh-huh. and local systems aren't. And like we're trying to raise money for our own foundation here to support local news in southwestern Ohio. You can't compete. You can't get money because it's all yeah. going to national organizations right. right now. And it is a good time to raise money for journalism, but not at the local level.
1: It, no, I think you raise a good point. I've, I've actually been um, impressed that over the last year and a half, the number of of national and international news organizations uh, that have actually uh, approached me and have done major uh, pieces. I mean, I've I've actually been quite impressed with the documentaries that have been done on German public television, on Japanese public television. They see the U.S. as kind of the canary in the Mm -hmm. coal mine. So I think there is, in many ways, kind of a, it has come back in, on national ones from the international uh, mm-hmm. organizations that have actually picked up on the, the survey that we did on the U.S. So I think in that case, we are beginning to see that. But I do think uh, one of the things that I think we need, we overlook a lot of times is when I came here, every was in 2008 uh, to become the night chair. Everybody was very concerned about whether there was going to be a business model for The New York Times.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. So we tend to look at our media as top down. When, in fact, there's a lot of uh, estimates and research that shows that as much as 85 percent of the news that feeds our democracy comes in through local newspapers. And one good way to think about that is look at the Armand Arbery uh, case. Right. Which was actually first covered by the Brunswick paper in Georgia. Mm -hmm. But it took the Atlanta Constitution Journal and the uh, New York Times to amplify that into a national story. Mm -hmm. So when we lose that, uh, that kind of on the ground reporting and the connections from the on the ground local reporters to the state and regional reporters who then amplify it up to the national level, what we're losing is all of that news at the state and regional level Mm -hmm. and below.
3: So I'm curious a little bit about the packaging of, of news. Yeah. You know, if, if you look now, you know, from from 2000 to 2020, that's another generation of right. news consumers whose whose experience with with news tends to be snippets in the context of social media, not to caric- right. be a caricature of this, but just it's a different model. So so what are what are things that have that might need to happen to engage kind of all generations in this in this new experience of of regional news?
1: Well, I I think there are several experiments that are out there. One is that I think what we've learned uh, is that we form habits uh, early in life and that we tend to take those habits with us through life. So, for example, I was working at the Times when uh, they first set up NYTimes.com, was involved with that, was at the Wall Street Journal as they were doing WSJ.com. But it took me until 2013 to actually start reading the digital editions of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal routinely. And it took me another year and a half before I was comfortable enough to say, this has more value to me now because I've changed my habits. I can't remember the last time I picked up a print newspaper, right? But it took, I think about how long it took me, someone in the industry to basically change my habits. So I think that part of it is we haven't looked at loyal news consumers in ways that we need to transition them and we haven't done enough to figure out how we transition millennials and uh and gen zers into a different form so Mm -hmm. i've been real impressed with some of the electronic newsletters that have come out and think that they may be a business model going forward or an introductory offer into something larger right Mm -hmm. but I mean, we can't know right now what it's going to be like 10 years from now. So we need to not only be caring about the people who are still with us, the news consumers who are still with us, but also about building that next generation and building the need to be informed and, and, and making people uh, understand this is important to our democracy, to our society, and most importantly to you and the, and the quality of life that you have. Well, Penny,
0: that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.